welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 4, Rowing Round in Roma Episode 5, Imrov Curig Mueldun Iverdoe The Voyage of Mueldun's Boat Part 2 The Isle of Intoxicating Berries Slowly, oh so slowly, Maldun became aware of its surroundings. He could sense the sun's warm brightness on the other side of his eyelids. Oh, but he didn't want to open his eyes. He felt relaxed, his limbs heavy, almost languorous. He felt very comfortable. He really didn't want to move a muscle, but why should he move? There was no reason for him to move. He had been dreaming. Yes, he had been dreaming a deep and peaceful dream, velvet dark and sensuous. Had he been dreaming of the woman? If he had, he didn't remember. The sudden pang of regret that that thought delivered was disturbing. No, he wasn't sure that he had been dreaming, but he had been sleeping. It had been a satisfying sleep, a pleasurable contentment. He was almost sorry to have to return at all from this quiet forgetfulness. He rested a while, hovering between consciousness and sleep. There was no hurry. Voices, anxious voices, invaded his ears, troubling his lazy enjoyment. Is he dying? Well, he's still breathing. Oh, all that red foam around his mouth. Is it blood? Oh, I don't think so. It looks more like juice from those red berries he ate. Oh, but he's been like this for all of three days. Oh, he must be dying. No one could sleep that long. Well, you could. Oh, we shouldn't have let him test those berries. Well, someone had to do it, and the lot fell to him. What are we going to do with him? The words irritated Muldoon. They would not allow him to drift off to sleep again. In spite of himself, Maldon's memory set to work to piece together everything that had happened. It hadn't been much of an island, not like the wide and welcoming Isle of the Women. It wasn't even inhabited. But it had been plentifully clothed in leafy trees, not tall, but rich in ruby-buried fruit. The berries seemed ripe and plump with juice, but none of them could put a name to this ready food. No one knew whether it was palatable, wholesome to eat, even safe. Maldoin remembered now that they'd cast lots, choosing one to risk life and health in the eating, and he'd been happy to oblige them, not greatly caring what happened to him, not then, not at that time. Maldoin had lost the warm comfort of sleep. The voices bothered him like biting insects. He shrugged his shoulders and opened his eyes, blinking in the sunshine. His crew were gathered around him as he lay on the grass under the shaded fruit tree, and he watched the anxiety fade from their faces as he sat up. Oh, I know, he said, I've slept for three days, but there's nothing wrong with me. The fruit is good. He stood up, stretching like a cat. Well, the fruit's more than good. It's excellent. Maldun smiled. He felt good. The sad weariness and exhaustion had fallen from him completely. He felt ready to go forward and complete this voyage of exploration.
Oh, gather all the berries you can, he told his crew. They're a great gift. Not only do they ease thirst, but they lift the spirits and cheer the heart. But, he added with a grin, just ensure you dilute the juice with plenty of water. I don't want to find you lot asleep for days and have to handle the boat alone. They all set to work with a will, filling every vessel they could find. Welcome back to the Voyage of Maeldun and Orem Rover after the last marathon it was episode. Long, was it? it was quite epic in the modern sense. Uh, we hope that you made it through with us through the first part of this voyage. Yeah, and this is actually the first episode after our own voyage into the unknown when we've tried to move our whole site onto new hosting, which mm. sounds dead simple and isn't. Unless you know what it is. So. <laughs> We hope it doesn't show. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, previously on Story Archaeology, we left Maeldun in a bit of a pensive, melancholy mood. He was regretting his enforced departure from the Island of Women. Yeah, I was left feeling really, really sorry for him. Yeah. That's that's why he, uh, in the Isle of Intoxicated Berries, you mm. want to stay too sound about it. He doesn't really care at that moment. He's yeah. fed up with a whole blooming crew of them. Exactly. Uh, it, it's a great story, though, isn't mm -hmm. it? How uh, they finally land on the Isle of Women, the mm. destination of all great heroes yeah. they're given everything they could possibly want wealth long life and leisure and uh, women to do everything for them mm -hmm. um even do all the important stuff like judging oh and, yeah uh, what do they do they get bored yeah <laughs> and go we want to go home. we want to go and find some work yeah <laughs> that's why we describe this as very star trek find yeah. a paradise and go no this isn't the lot of man we yeah. shall leave yeah We'll leave all these beautiful women. Yes. But course. anyway, they, they set off in spite of the fact that one of them has to be mutilated on the way. Yes, exactly. There's still plenty more of this voyage to come. Um, we haven't quite reached the end of it yet. But it seems from this point like the crew have at least started to turn homewards. At least in desire. Exactly. And they travel on mm -hmm. and get to Island 28. The Isle of Intoxicated Berries. Now, we don't need to go through that one because I chose that one as the opening story. Yeah, but it's worth saying that this is, again, we feel the first of a pair of islands. We've met yeah. this quite a lot before, uh, which is quite a nice structure. So it lays the groundwork for the next island. I certainly got the feeling that there's a way in which Mildoon chooses to wake up from this three-day sleep. You know, he could have maybe stayed asleep, but he does choose to get up and go on. Yeah, it's almost as though he's uh, he's dis made the decision to turn his mind to home again. He's yes. accepted this and, uh, you know, this is his darkest moment exactly. and he's moving on, if that's not reading too much. And uh, Oddly enough, so. in the light of the Akura, who mm. do exactly the same thing, yeah. at some point they have to accept forgiveness yeah. and, uh, so that they can return to home. go home, whereas mm. my Dulan sort of has to accept that he is human exactly. and go yeah. home. Well, let's move on. Let's go on to the next island. <laughs> 29, the Island of the Phoenix Eagle. Right, well, the next island that they come to has this great wood which has giant oak trees, giant yew trees, and then there's a great plain which has a really great nice. lake in the middle of it, and there's a church and there's a fortress, and uh, there's loads of nice, Quite tasty, idyllic, fat really. sheep. Yes. And in all of this, they meet, what a surprise, yet another hairy hermit wearing nothing but his own hair. Um, and he then proceeds to tell them his story of how he got there. And this is almost like an Imrov in its own right. right yeah. as I, in my notes, I've written them as sub-Imrov, <laughs> if you like. So he had set out in a boat with 
14 companions and of course they've all died he's the last survivor they were part of the community of Bernon of Burr um, and he also shows them a stone tablet from there which they brought with them as a relic and they all sort of worship it and what have you for a whole season it says they eat on the fat sheep so they sit yes. there and eat sheep yep. for... <laughs> <laughs> actually this Brennan is quite an interesting mm. character I, I went to try and find out what I could about him mm. and yeah he's, uh, he seems to have died in about 573 and he was another one who was trained under St Finian mm. so, so he's another one of Column Kills exactly. group yeah part of that uh, the Saints University yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about them quite a lot. Yeah, we have. Um, and we've kind of talked somewhat about the difference between that kind of Saints University, the Cullum Kill, Cullum uh, Kill Christianity. Christianity, as opposed to Kayla Day. Um, it does seem as though the Burr area and this particular community might have come under the Kayla Day territory at a later date. Yeah. I don't know about this um, relic. You get the feeling that he's showing them some fashionable relic. Mm. Maybe at this point there was such... I mean, do uh, yes, we know that there are fashionable relics yes. for, uh, for a while. And maybe this one might have been one of them. I don't know. Yeah, well, it also has that kind of thread that we found of... The, the showing or collecting of evidence. Yeah. So we had uh, Duran cutting off the bit of the silver net, which of course appeared in, in one of the other Roma as well. We even had that wonderful one where the leaf of the tree oh, became yeah. Columkill's flabellum, which is now at Kells, you know. You know and it's still illustrated on the rock, on a stone at Cardiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, what's interesting though is that this isn't evidence that the Whale Dune is going to bring back. It's someone else's Imrov evidence that yeah, they get shown. <laughs> but yeah, it's all this general things what we brought back from our holidays yes yes exactly <laughs> they're, they're, these are souvenirs yeah mind you that's not as crazy as it sounds mm. because after all even when you take the word holiday yes. as against vacation yeah the holiday is directly descended from the holy day the saint's day yes and the times of pilgrimage and obligation exactly so it was kind of important so it makes sense yeah yeah and uh, in fact grace and perry the artist um has talked a lot about the sort of pilgrimage as the forerunner of tourism you know, and that where in the past you could make a, a religious pilgrimage, pilgrimage yeah. you can now make cultural pilgrimages. Uh, yeah, and actually I quite like that, I suppose, being slightly pretentious. I hate <laughs> talking about going and being a tourist. Mm. Um, I'd rather go on talking about, oh, a pilgrimage to Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to sit on a beach or get brown or just no. have fun. Yeah. I'm going to see specific things. Exactly. So, yeah, tourists mm. is a bit, it's not quite what you're doing. No, but they, they do share an origin. And so, yeah. yeah. So I we prefer. do have some tourist souvenirs, I think, with yes. these relics. <laughs> then we get to the main story. Yes. Now, this is a really strange one. Mm. Whereas in the first one, you've just got the intoxicating berries. As we've said, you've got two islands. And in the second one, the story, you know, you're almost given the whole story. Yes. And in this one, you've got this uh, this ancient eagle appears onto the plane. Only he's in a horrible state. Mm. You know, he's dripping with lice, his feathers are mangy, he's, he's absolutely you know, he's just revolting. Mm. And then two other eagles appear and they start to groom him. Mm. They pick off all the lice and they start picking out the dead feathers. Mm. Now the big eagle has brought in this wonderful branch of berries and it mm. says look like grapes. Yeah, they? they're Great sort of the size of berries. Grapes, but yeah, they're red berries. And they feed him some of these berries and they squeeze some of the berries and throw them into the lake yeah and he bathes in the lake and he comes out of it three days later a new eagle yeah he's actually re not reborn as a baby but he's actually completely renewed. renewed yes and then he goes three times around the island at the third out on the third day yeah. the third bird mm -hmm. flies around the island and off he goes mm. 
It's a great story. It's wonderful, yeah. And of course, Duron, being Duron, <laughs> says, um, you see that lake full of these berries? What will happen if um, we decide to take a swim in that lake? Do you think we'll be renewed? The others go, oh, no. <laughs> no, it wouldn't dare. Terribly dangerous. Why all the birds' venom must have gone in yeah. there? You know, you're not getting into a dirty bath exactly, water. Exactly, that's what it is. <laughs> but Duron, you know, he just jumps in and he comes out feeling good. Uh, and after that, he, he never apparently shows any signs of ageing or um, illness at all. Yeah, and what it says specifically is that he never went bald and he never lost any of his teeth. So, right, so which you, are very particular. You end up with no teeth and bored your old whatever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it also says that from that time on, his vision was very sharp. And I wondered, was that kind of a sharp as an, an eagle? eagle? You know, eagle-eyed. It's a great story, isn't it? Yeah, there's some interesting points in that story. Mm. Um, did you notice it was Deron? He was the one who chopped off the hand of the, the, the one who caught the ball of uh, wool in yes. the previous, uh, the previous the Isle of Women. Yeah. Uh, and yet here he is, having sort of refused the other world benefits. Mm. He's now reaping another world benefit reward. Yeah, yeah, he's he's getting he his own kind of reward. magic gift, you know. Yeah, it's a funny one. Um, the other one that I kind of noticed was that in the Isle of Intoxicating Berries, so in the one immediately preceding this, it seems to be the same berries. And um, when Weldoon experiences them, he gets this three-day sleep. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say anything about him never getting... Uh, ill again or not aging afterwards you but know. you're right it is three days it is it? so it, it says to me that they're linked but that this you know is a much bigger a much more noticeable intense benefit exactly it's yeah, intensified yeah, yeah. than the previous one yeah and of course you've got this sort of almost classical imagery mm. of uh, a phoenix i know yes. it's an eagle but he's effectively a phoenix exactly the bird that gets renewed or born again you and know. i know it's classical imagery it's used a lot in Christ- early christianity mm. you often see it in early christian churches a phoenix mm. representing christ of course and here he is next to the the hairy hermit mm. you've got this sort of christian symbolism yeah. coming in but it's still wonderful classical other worlds yeah and, and as as we said, it is this three day cycle, which of course is going to appeal in terms of the the Christian mythology of uh, being resurrected on the third day. And it's just so overloaded with this, you know, third hour, third day, third three birth. times around the island. You know, how many more threes can we stick in here? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just the Christians who love mm. their threes. No, I mean we know it's very popular with the Irish. Oh yeah. and all the insular and continental Celts love yeah. their three. In fact, it's. To be honest, it's fairly worldwide, this yes. concept of the three. Yes. But of course, in these in these climbs, as well as three, other prime numbers do get a look in as other well. Other prime numbers are available. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that strikes me is you've got almost a hidden reference to something which is in the Welsh folklore. Mm. We did deal with it in a very early podcast episode mm. with the story of Lou mm. and the Welsh Slow. The Welsh Slow. Yes. Slow, all right. <laughs> yeah, 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 your, your Welsh is much better than <laughs> him anyway yeah him yeah. of the long arm yeah we well, remember when he's um, struck through with a spear mm. and uh, he goes off to you know he disappears in the, and uh, uh, Gwydion finds him as an eagle yes dripping gobbets of flesh yeah. and lice and maggots yeah. it's pretty nasty yeah. description alright it certainly is but you've got and he is renewed exactly yeah yeah so whether the there is a one. hidden reference mm. to that I don't know yeah but it's uh, interesting to draw the comparison it's good strong and image apologies to all Welsh people I can read it I just can't 
<laughs> Don't worry, I'm probably pronouncing it really badly as well. No, you're pretty good now. <laughs> and so we travel on to Island 30, the Island of Joy. Yes. Now, that's quite a brief uh, episode in the text. It describes how there's an island with a great plain and it's full of people who are all laughing and playing with no let-up whatsoever. The crew draw lots to see who's going to go and explore and what a surprise, it's Wildoon's third and last foster brother who draws the lot. He goes onto the island and begins laughing and playing along with everyone else as though they've all known each other all their lives. Um, and the crew sort of sit and they wait for the foster brother to come back and they wait a bit more and then they decide he's not coming back and so they just leave. That's a bit tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it also, it's almost like the island feels slightly out of place. Mm. I mean... It seems to belong to an earlier phase of the voyage. Surely you should have gone before the Isle of Women, really. Yeah, it does seem that way. It's also, it's such a brief description. It almost feels as though it was hurriedly added in, or almost as though it had been mm. forgotten. Um, but there's not even a rescue attempt like they had on the Island of Sorrow. Which is really quite yeah. a, a sort of in-depth story with lots yeah, of detail. Exactly, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you def definitely don't get that here. I certainly feel as though they should have already got rid of the third foster brother before they get to the Island of Women, which is like this kind of ultimate mm. destination. Yeah, that's what I was story. Thinking, yeah. yeah, that it feels like it should have happened before then. But the storyteller in this instance has kept all the numbers consistent. Up until this point, he's talked about 18 of them. Yeah, and there has been a woman on the Isle of exactly, Women for him. Exactly, for everyone. So it's consistent, but it sort of feels a little bit out of place. Right, so they go on without the third foster brother mm -hmm. until they get to Island 31, the Island of Fiery Ramparts. Mm -hmm. Mind you, uh, they don't even get to land here. No. I mean, it's just they, there's this island, but it's got this huge ring of fire constantly turning. And yet there's obviously a gap in the mm. ring because when they can see through the ring, they see this wonderful land with uh, fortresses and plains and houses and everything. Mm. It's it's a really beautiful image of a perfect sort of almost like other world. Yeah. Uh, landscape mm. but they can't get in mm. and they can't there's no way through and so they just look at it for a while a bit longingly and mm. then they disappear on their way yeah and yeah. that's it yeah and it, it really reminds me of descriptions like of Kuroi's fort which of course we met in Flethrikran um, where it's got this ever spinning door as a security yeah. measure you know and yeah. you have to know the right time in order yeah. to get in it so, certainly spins all night yeah this again has a similar thing whereby there seems to be this door that comes round periodically you yeah, know, but yeah. They, they can't get in either. They can yeah. only see in. And the fact that it's fire, this mm. ring of fire, it also reminds me of the protected graveyard mm. in Tiger Cane. Yes. There's a ring of fire around a house in Nero. Yes. But it's the it's the, the graveyard, which mm. is ringed around with this incredible description yeah, of fire, yeah. with all the sparks in it. And all these strange but, lights coming out of it. Yeah, the, but they can't yeah. get in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in, oddly enough, that's the only time I've ever come across anything like that ring mm. of fire. Mm. And I was delighted to find that you've got this sort of fiery island here which suggests yeah. that it is a known set known exactly piece it's, of symbolism. it's a recognized motif yeah and the description of what they see through the door when it comes around is it's our very well-known classic oh, other yeah. world it's very yeah. clearly you know everyone is happy and drinking and all the rest of it but i think that this kind of shows them that they've had their last chance to get to the other world. They can't get in again. Now all they can do is look and they they all deem it delightful, I think, is the, the yeah, phrase yeah. in Stokes. But yeah, that's it. They can now only look, they can never get there again. Ah, oh, sad, isn't it? it? Is. So we come on to Island 32. Mm -hmm. 
Island of Forgiveness, or maybe we should call it the Island of the Reformed Thief. Yes. Now, as they're approaching this island, uh, they think they see a white bird, but when they get closer, it turns out to be another hairy hermit. Flapping his hair. Yes, who's all uh, dressed in his own white hair. Now, he has another long and winding story to tell them. He describes how he used to be a cook uh, on Tory Island. Of he was an <laughs> evil cook and he used wow. to steal the food from the church supplies uh, in order to get himself treasures and jewellery and he said he kept on doing this until his house was absolutely stuffed full with hangings and pillows and gold bookcases and Everything that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, he even digs tunnels to burrow underneath, yes. to burrow into treasuries. Exactly, yeah. How many treasures have they got on Tory Island? Well. It's small. <laughs> <laughs> and then something happens to him. Mm -hmm. One day, he's burying a corpse. Now, how on earth is it the job of a cook to bury a corpse? I don't know, but anyway. Unless it's going <laughs> in the compost heap. Well, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, he, it's his job to bury a corpse. Mm -hmm. And uh, as he goes to dig grave in this consecrated ground, he comes upon another corpse who's mm -hmm. already buried there. And the corpse immediately sits up and goes, hang on a minute, you're not burying that sinner on top of me. I'm a holy corpse, I am. <laughs> I'm not having one of them on top of me. And he says, well, look, I'm sorry, I can't find anywhere else to put him. He says, if you bury that corpse here, then you will be eternally damned. And what's more, you'll be dead in three days. Mm. Well, this sort of puts him off a bit. And uh, he says, what would I get if I bury the corpse somewhere else? He says, oh, then you, you'll be saved and you'll, you'll have eternal life. Uh, and he says, how do I know you're telling the truth? He <laughs> said, well, look, if you're going to set me a test, this is what I will do. Um, watch this. I'll fill the grave with sand. And this is what he does. Mm. But there's a sort of weird bit at this point where it's almost as though the evil cook is seeing from the point of view as if he... If, he is the corpse he's yeah. burying. Yeah. It do isn't very clear, but no. there's that sudden shift in perspective. Mm. And at uh, that point, something happens. Mm -mm. His story then sort of switches and says how he has a new boat and the boat is sitting on the water and the water looks all calm and still. And so he decides to go out in his boat and decides to take all of his worldly possessions with him, both big and small. And of course, once he's loaded up the boat with all of his possessions, up pops a big wind and blows him far out to sea. Surprise, surprise. Exactly. And once he's out in the middle of unknown waters, then he's becalmed and he's... his boat won't move a bit. <laughs> and then, for some reason, as he's becalmed, absolutely stuck, doesn't know what he's going to do, he sees a familiar figure. Mm -hmm. There on the water, there's a man sitting on top of the waves. Mm -hmm. And the, this man turns around to him and says, you won't move away from here while you've got any of those possessions with you. And if you really could see, you could see that you're surrounded by demons mm. ready to drag you to hell. <laughs> so what I want you to do is throw all your worldly goods over the edge. Mm. Well, he hasn't got much choice now. No. So he throws everything over the edge except for one little cup. Mm, he can't quite uh, get rid of it all, it seems. Well, that seems to satisfy the, uh, the man in the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, the man tells him, right, well, your boat will now go on, but wherever it stops there shall you live mm. and so off he goes until he hits a little rock mm. hardly a bare rock hardly sticking out of the water and there the boat stops and he realizes that he's stuck marooned on a bare rock yes and of course the boat is swept away by the ocean um and after a little while on this rock thinking i wonder what i'm going to eat up pops a little otter from the sea 
Uh, I didn't know we had sea otters in these climbs. Either that or he's gone all the way to California. But <laughs> no, we and, won't worry about that. It's an otter. Yeah, it's an otter. The otter climbs up out of the sea and it's got a big salmon in its mouth. And it drops the salmon at uh, this evil cook's feet and then heads off back into the sea. Now, the cook, being a cook, thinks, I can't eat raw salmon. He's obviously never heard of sushi. So he just flings the thing back into the sea and sits there continuing to wonder what he's going to eat. Pretty sorry for himself. Yeah, I'd say so. And three days after that, up pops an otter again with a big salmon in its mouth. But this time it's brought a friend, another otter, who is carrying a piece of burning firewood. And so they put the firewood down and the otters blow on it to make it into a proper fire. And then uh, the cook eats his salmon. And this keeps on happening. He gets provided with a bit of, uh, with a salmon and a bit of firewood every day um, and the little cup that he has is continually filled with whey water um, and he lives like that for seven years. Yeah, but something happens to the island, doesn't it? Yes, uh, that over time, as well as being fed and replenished, the island is growing. And uh, we've met this before in a couple of places, but yes, that it's sort of turning into a proper island where it was at first just a rock. Um, and after seven years of the otter and the otters and the firewood... You'd be pretty fed up with fish by that point, wouldn't well, you? Well, you know, as long as he's still getting fed and not having to do very much for it. Um, but there's a change that happens uh, where instead of being brought the fish in the fire, he's magically presented with a little cake and a slice of fish and instead of having whey water in his cup it's booze this time so it's good liquor so and he gets that for another seven years before our friends Wildoon and his crew finally arrive to hear the story. It's a strange story. Oh gosh and long and convoluted uh, but at the end of it all this hermit now as he is cook as was um, does say to Wildoon first of all they'll all get home safely very soon um, but not to go and seek vengeance on yeah, his father's killers. Won't do him any good. Yeah, that that is, is pointless and useless and that he should give up the idea of uh, seeking vengeance. Yeah, I suppose this is why we've called it the island of forgiveness. forgiveness. Exactly, yeah. yeah. What would this improv in its own right mm. that the uh, evil cook has had? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's almost like an improv within an improv. Exactly, yeah. I do find that uh, this hermit story does have elements of that setting adrift punishment, even though there isn't much to connect in the text, the experience of the, the grave and the corpse burying with the going out in a boat. The fact that, you know, he has been a thief, that he tries to run away or, you know, whatever it is he's trying to do, and then has to throw everything overboard in order to find a place to rest. Mm -hmm. It has all those kind of moralistic elements of being, you know, a judgment for a crime or a sin and mm -hmm. so being set adrift to be a non-person then. What interests me about this story is this bearing of the corpse. Mm. You know, I always had this um, interest in the Leitrim story of yeah. Tiger Cain and the fairies. Yeah. But you've got this repeated motive of a, trying to bury a corpse and a corpse turning around to you and goes, sorry, you know, where is he who's got no bed? Yeah. Which is the line from Tiger Cain. Yeah. And I thought that was almost unique Mm -hmm. story and it is yeah but we've got 
in the last two islands, mm. we have two references which could connect with Tiger King. Yeah, yeah. I find that quite interesting. It makes me yeah. want to look into it further. Absolutely. Because all we know of Tiger King is it's it's, it's, it's absolutely a Leitrim story, mm -hmm. but there is a version possibly that comes from the east of the country. Mm -hmm. um, the tiger, or the, that story, mm. Tiger King is mentioned in something, I think, from the west coast. Mm. Um, and the story seems to be set in Tory Island. Yes, Which yes. is, you've got elements from all over the country, mm. and yet motifs have not come across anywhere else. Exactly, yeah. Just go back and listen to Corpse Carrying for Beginners, which is where we went into Tiger Cane and into Nira in a lot of detail, yeah. because of this very striking motif of the corpse burying or the corpse carrying. And you it's know. not common. No, it certainly isn't. So. so finding it here is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I like is about the way that the cook is testing God. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> well, anyway, how God. do I know you're telling the yeah, truth? Prove oh, it. <laughs> prove it then. Exactly like in the biblical story of Gideon, mm -hmm. how he says to God, how do I know you're telling the truth? And mm -hmm. God says, oh, he says, look, and Gideon says, all right, then I'll put out this sheepskin or hide. I can't mm. remember what she was. If it's wet and everything else is dry in the morning, then I'll believe you. Mm -mm. And God says, all right, then. <laughs> and in the morning, you know, the hide is dry. And Gideon says, I don't, but this is just not good enough. Look, mm. we'll have another test. Mm. If tomorrow the hide is wet and everything else, or did I get it that way around before? Uh, you started that way, then switched into the... Oh, all right. Well, one day it's one way, one <laughs> yeah. day it's the other. If the hide is wet tomorrow um, and everything else is dry, yeah. then I'll believe you. Mm -hmm. And God says, really? Okay, <laughs> then we'll do it once more. Mm. And it works. But it's mm. a very strange story because that's the one which ends up with the sun stopping in the sky. So mm. you can never be sure. Yeah. But yeah, I, there may even be that that story would have been known. Yes, yes. It's an old test, well-known Old Testament story. Yeah. And certainly that that challenge to God, or you know, you know, yeah. prove it, prove it that I'm going to have eternal life. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then of course it has to be turned around to go. Well, you know, if you are bad, then you'll get eternal damnation. Yeah. You know? But again, we're into this now. It's this: you live, you die, and then if you're lucky, you go to heaven. Exactly. Yeah. We've moved away from this eternal omnipresence yeah. of the other world. Mm. And then, of course, we've got another interesting thing. You've got the man sitting on the wave. Yeah. The judge on the sea. Yes. Now, we all know who that is. Yeah. I mean, right. that's Mananan. Yes. That's, that's Mananan in his prime role as judge. Exactly. Except that here, it's very much the kind of the Christian judge of sin and saying, you know, you have to get rid of the wages of sin in order to... Proceed. It is literally the wages of sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the other interesting thing, he says that he's surround, said that the cook is surrounded by invisible demons. Yeah. This is also something he said, Maranana said before, oh, yeah. in a different context. Exactly. And it's an Imrolf Bran. And that's a very important link, I think, yeah. to the story of Bran. Um, where Mananon said, oh, you can't see it, but there's a host, a multitude swarming all around you, all these, they were then the beautiful people of the other yeah, world. Yeah. So it's almost an exact echo, Parody, or yeah. what, except that what were the other world people has simply turned into demons now. So that's a very noticeable... Yeah, though we could get into the discussion mm -hmm. of what is a demon at that point. I know. That's another, that's another story. We've dipped our toes into that one before, yeah. so that's quite a long one. <laughs> now, we also met this sort of enlarging island before. Uh, we had the island of the hermit with his family, where the island grew by a foot in a tree every year. And this has a similar kind of thing that, you know, he's, he's being fed by, you know, some the mystical beings. Yeah, well. exactly. You know, so it's got all of these things that we have met before. But what's interesting in this one, 
um, is that there is a, a notable improvement in his supply, that it goes from a raw fish and a bit of firewood to the nice slice of fish and a little cake. and A meal. The, exactly, yeah, something much more sophisticated as the island gets bigger. And um, I wondered if this is like a kind of a Christian symbol for forgiveness or for absolution. Yeah, you know? improvements in his living conditions. Exactly. But My... that happens over years. You know, it takes a long time, it takes but it does happen. 14 years before mm. the whole thing is, is done. Exactly. Yeah. And what I do find interesting, I think this is the only place where we come across the otter bringing food. Oh, yeah. Which and is I love the idea of the otter. Here's, here's the sound for you. Yeah. I can't eat it raw. Yeah. All right, I'll come back with fire. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the idea of a little otter trying to get through the waves with this lit bit of firewood, you know, that's asking quite a lot, you know. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I will maintain that this one is not nearly as well told as some of the previous no, uh, it's encounters. A bit rambly and uh, can be hard to follow. If the dialogue isn't even as clear. No, it makes me think that perhaps some of this was inserted. Mm. As, I don't know. It's just this idea of forgiveness and so forth. Mm. So we finally, finally get to Island Thirty Three, mm -hmm. the Island of the Falcon. Yes. Now this is an island which doesn't seem to have any evidence of human habitation. It's got plenty of herds of cattle and sheep though. Um, it does say that they eat sheep but then they took some sheep with them from the island of the phoenix eagle and the hairy hermit there so it doesn't specify whether they're new or old sheep. But what they see when they're there is a falcon that they reckon looks Irish. Now, how they can tell that a falcon looks Irish? Well, I don't think there are any um, other species of falcon which are specific to Ireland. I don't know, but, you know, maybe it was painted green or, you know, it was carrying a thing of shamrocks. <laughs> or maybe or... it went, ah, oh, ah, oh, well, it could have yeah, accent. Yeah. I don't know. It's not made clear, but whatever feature it is of this poor falcon, uh, they recognise it as Irish. Maildoon suggests they should follow it and it flies off to the southeast and they sail after it and then they come to an island which turns out to be the very first island they encountered right at the beginning of this voyage which has the murderers of Ale. They've come full circle. Right back to where they started. So as they approach this island once again they decide to eavesdrop on what's happening inside and they just happened over here as they pass. Someone saying, "Oh, what do you think happened to that whale dune?" And someone suggests, "Oh, well, maybe oh, he'd, he'd drowned. be drowned by now." There's he'd no be drowned. It. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then others say, "Well, you know, he might not be drowned, and then he'll come and essentially cut your throat while you sleep." Ha 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 ha. But they do kind of pose the question, "Oh, what would we do if Whale Dune came back now?" And Whale Dune, of course, has his ear pressed to the door outside. And the so presumably they've landed. Yeah. Well, you'd assume so, yeah. yeah. Either that or they're shouting really loudly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the chief of the island says, well, you know, if Maildoon comes here, he'd be made very welcome. He's had years of trials and tribulations. He's suffered enough. Ah. We would welcome him <laughs> here with open now, arms. I don't think this is what Maldoon was expecting no. to hear from these great enemies exactly. that have been there in the background the whole time. Mm -hmm. So with the wind completely knocked out of his sails, mm. he knocks on the door. Yeah. And uh, he's welcomed. Mm. They're welcomed in, weary travellers. Mm. They're given new clothes and set by the fire and feasted and yeah. he now has a stator of a wonderful wanderer mm -hmm. with a great story to tell and yes people are always welcome yeah yeah and it says how you know he thought it best to report all of the marvels and the terrors that they'd seen on their voyage and it gives this little quote in latin um which i went and looked up and 
All it says is, this is helpful to remember. This is a story <laughs> worth remembering. Exactly, yes. Yeah, which is great. But it does seem to me that at this point, um, anything about either the vengeance that he set out with or even the forgiveness in place of vengeance, they both seem a bit irrelevant. I sort of feel like if they had arrived here and what they'd overheard was, oh, if that Maeldoon comes here, we've got We'd to kill him. him. Yeah. Then the story would end with them all it fighting. It would end with a battle, wouldn't exactly. it? Exactly. And they would have just been enemies yeah. still, bent yeah. on mutual destruction. So it almost seems like anything about vengeance or forgiveness just doesn't really hold any more about hospitality it is of course yeah which i think is you know that the, yeah maybe hospitality was lacking before mm. and now you know but he's been welcomed in yes it's a good ending to the story it is so now we get to aftermath as expected deron takes the offering that bit of net that he mm. found with the mesh yeah was it two and, two and a half, half ounces of silver, silver yeah so it's quite a big ring mm. and he takes it up to armar where it's seen by everybody mm -hmm. there's oddly enough no mention of come, come on. on no there hasn't been for a while now and i don't think there's been a mention of him since Diron cut someone else's hand off in order to escape the Isle of Women. I think it was him. <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> certainly he doesn't uh, pipe up For again. For a named character, uh, yeah, he yeah. suddenly vanishes. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, and then it says that Wildoon goes back to his own district. Which district? Doesn't say. I mean, it's father or foster parents. I mean, he's got a little claim to Ivan now. I know, yeah. Well, whatever he deems his own district then, maybe, maybe that's where he's gone. Um, but the text does end with this lovely, careful statement that this version has been compiled and told by Oyes the Fair. And it says it has been done to delight the mind and for the folk of Ireland after him. It's a storyteller's story. So yeah. that's the, our rather long version of Maldoon and, and really the best of the Imran. I think it's worth looking at some of the themes. There are ways of reading this and ways of telling the story, yes. aren't there? The ways you can interpret it. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to look at three or four of those. Yes. Um, and the sort of heading we gave ourselves for the first theme is uh, the life of Pi. Uh, right. <laughs> Might take a bit of explaining. Over to what you. we're looking at is the, the, the psychological journey mm. of the story and the uh, protagonist. Yes. If you like, the journey of the protagonist, yeah. to put it right. Mm -hmm. But if you think about Life of Pi, I mean, we quite like the book and the film. Oh, yeah. you, I've seen the film. You've seen I, the, I read the book, the book yes, but... which is brilliant. Jan and Martel, it's highly really recommend. a story about a man who's relating to the very major problems mm -hmm. in his life by finding different ways to tell the story which are helpful to him and yes. help him to express how he feels. Yes. It's not quite an allegory. Mm. It's sort of a lighter touch. Mm. I'd put it as a parallel story with applicability. Yes. But then I like to quote Tolkien. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, what that means, if you like, is that there are many ways to read both you know this story and any story and that one reading is not necessarily more correct than another except that it's not about tigers oh, definitely not about <laughs> tigers yeah yeah put that out of your mind um but yeah i think that what makes if you like a good piece of literature is that ability to have these readings coexisting without any one sort of saying, oh, this is what This is the only way you can read it. Exactly. In the same way as, you know, Tolkien was so uh, annoyed, if mm. not angry, about yeah. people saying that uh, the ring represented the atomic bomb yeah. in the story. Exactly, yeah. Because it was written uh, during sure. the Second World War, yeah. that around that time, mm. therefore it must be. And he said, yeah. well, no that has applicability yes but it's not what it was about exactly exactly and uh, you could say that yes there's a story of life of pi and the 
vote, vote trip with the tigers yeah. has applicability, but yeah. that's not what it means. Exactly, yeah. And we yeah. can say exactly the same about Maradona, I, I think. think so, definitely. So we're sort of looking at his psychological journey. Yeah. Now, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that uh, I think Maradona, the whole story revolves around mistakes made by a man who is trying to find one way of telling his story. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of having many ways, mm. he's looking for the only way to tell his story. Yeah, he's looking for a literal truth, and which of which he assumes there is only one. It's all connected with identity, I suppose. Yeah, it's, again, as I think we said before, he's kind of convinced that he, as a self, is defined by this kind of genetic past, this, you know set identity based on who his natural parents are. Now, I find this particularly interesting mm. because here is almost like saying this man's life sends him into the unknown mm. because he is determined to find out about his genetic past. Yeah. And yet it seems to this seems surprising because so much of identity in these early Irish stories mm. is bound to uh, the status of your natural parents mm. and your tour and so forth. Yeah. So isn't this sort of going against what you'd expect to find? Well, I think it is. And I think that that is part of why it makes a story. Uh, but I think that what's kind of key to it that we pointed to before um, is the fact that he's fostered. Yeah, now fosterage is quite a complicated issue, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, uh, to, to give it as briefly as I possibly yeah. can, it was a set institution of early Irish society. There's there's a whole law text called the Coin Earth, which is about the, the laws of fosterage. Unfortunately, we've only got a couple of scraps of that. But that's how much it is integral to yeah, the structure yeah. of Irish society. Um, now, fosterage, it would mean that uh, you had a very close emotional connection to another family within the so same So at a tourist. certain age, you were fostered to another family. Exactly. Like sent away to school. Very much so. And it's very tied up with education. Um, I think I've said previously that there are, there's definitely mention of, if you like, a set curriculum, depending mm. on what your sort of status from your natural parents is and what the status of your foster parents are and then the things that are right for you to learn. It, so it really is being sent off to school at the age of seven. And um, I've also mentioned before how the bond between the child and the foster parents was so strong that the old Irish equivalents for mammy and daddy, uh, which are mwima and adze, um, came, they're only applied to foster parents and mm -hmm. not natural parents. And what's more, mwima came to mean a nurse mm -hmm. and adze came to mean a teacher. And mm. that tells us a great deal your about... Your nurse and your teacher... Exactly. ...are your foster parents. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now, but it was also... Uh, it had a lot to do with status, like I say. Quite often, you would be fostered into a family who were slightly higher status than you. So you kind of got a bit of their uh, status rubbing off on you, and you certainly then had a close bond to someone so who was more powerful who than you were. Who you were fostered to, yeah, it was it's as important as a good marriage. Exactly. Mind you, yeah. it's still the same, you know, which yeah. school do you go to? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Sending you to a good school, slightly yes. above your status. Yes. It's not so unheard of today. It's not, but what also then happens, which I suppose does happen today in some of the elite schools, is that the number of foster children that you have, mm -hmm. it then reflects on your status. It does because the like higher status you are, yeah, then the more people are going 
going to want to send their kids to you. And that's why we where we get sort of, you know, Mither had 150 boys and 150 girls in his yeah. foster care, you know. And that's important that girls were fostered too. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that they had a, a specific curriculum of education as well for what they would need to do, depending on their background and their future. But of course, usually it's an open process, isn't it? Exactly. And that's the thing. It's very formalised. It is a transparent process and I don't think it would have been usual for a foster child not to know they were fostered. And that's significant. Maldon yes. doesn't know he's fostered. Yes, and that's what makes it, um, you know, a point in his development, you know, is that much like Oingus, he believes himself to be the natural child yeah. of the people to whom he's fostered. So insisting mm. that he, uh, to know who he was who his natural parents are. Mm. This is really opening a can of worms, isn't it? It really is. And it kind of, it, it is disrespectful, uh, first of all, to his foster parents, and especially his foster mother, who begs him mm. not mm. to go digging. She said, you know, I'm as much of a mother to you as anyone else could be. You know, um, this obviously isn't a straightforward, open fosterage. You know, this is more like what we might think of as adoption. You know, and she begs him not to go and find out and he's quite forceful. You he know, he is. Yeah, I mean, that thing of I'm not going to eat or drink until you tell me the truth, you know, that's kind of very that's aggressive. Yeah, yeah, it is, really. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting, um, being fostered in secret mm. is usually part of your, shall we say, your traditional hero script. Exactly, yeah. You know, your hero script demands that you're fostered in secret. Exactly, And yes. only a hero, well, someone with a hero script mm. might not know who his foster parents are. Exactly. That's part of the secret yes. childhood yeah. that you find with so many of these heroes. Mm -hmm. um, but... Often they reverse the situation, yeah. you're the normal situation. It's all mirrored. Yeah. So with a, a hero script, mm -hmm. the child is often fostered among lower status people. Exactly. You know, the, oh, I was stolen away from the gypsies, not yeah, really yeah. the son of the king or the queen. Exactly. I'm a yeah. prince living with the swine With paupers, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's the sort of the hidden child. Yeah, you that's know. the yeah. sort of mirror image mm. of the new normal situation. Mm. So Mel Doohan seems to belong partly to that. Mm. But it doesn't fit again, does it? Mm, no, because his foster parents are seemingly much higher status than his natural parents. And of course, because he's the child of rape, it also damages his status. That mm. while legally his father should have, you know, financial responsibility for his upbringing because he was the, the perpetrator of the rape, but it means that his child can't get his status. Mm. You know, he's lost his status through doing that. The father's lost his status, so his child is going to be low status so as well. It's a real mixture here. You've mm. got the secret childhood mm. of the hero script, yeah. but he's fostered among people who are higher than him, which doesn't fit the hero exactly, yeah. script. Yeah. Yet he's given the hero status of becoming the best and brightest mm. and strongest than all the boys of his age. Yeah. So it's a real mixture. It is, yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting, of course. And in going to his natural mother, he's broken faith with his foster mother already. And then he really damages his natural mother, the nun, by yeah. kind of bringing up this past, which I'm sorry to say would have been seen as shameful. Yeah. And, you know, obviously is even in contemporary terms, it's going to be a, a difficult memory, you know, of having to talk about being raped and you know who the rapist was and so on um, and really all that Boyle is doing he's raking over his father's bare burnt bones yeah and now he has to live with his chances exactly yeah and then Brickery comes along yeah now I think he's a bit of a plot contrivance but he's quite yeah. a good one he's sort of being brought in and we need someone to shift things along oh yeah here. <laughs> so who can we oh yeah poison tongue yeah yeah He'll but do it. you know anyway I mean he has to move the action and gives him a final sort of push over the edge yes pretty much so yeah <laughs> literally, yeah, literally uh, sets him on his way yeah and by 
a brick note or a brick crew giving him that push it sort of sets him off on his journey uh, which is going to be a journey of self-discovery whether he likes what he discovers or not yeah. you know he, he's still gonna have to live with it but i think that what's important in what we were saying before about you know the life of pi and the yeah. parallel with the life of pi is that part of what Maeldun has to discover is that nothing really is what it seems for anyone yeah, you know yeah. or that anything that you encounter will have something very different no going on path through the world the truth yeah. will not set you free exactly yeah yeah it's the it's always truth yeah it's always more complicated mm, than you imagine think. it will be and uh, indeed his own story which starts off as this quest for vengeance turns into a voyage of self-discovery so even his own story can be rewritten in that way. Yeah, and I suppose in the end, he just can't escape the human condition. Mm. He reminds me a little bit of Gilgamesh yeah. going out to search for immortality mm. and discovering that he basically can't have it yes. because he's part human. He, he can't stay awake long enough. Exactly, yeah. It's that same both the epic and the... Um, the failure. Yes, yeah. The heroic failure. Yes, because of the humanity that, that's involved. And you can feel that same quality in Cahullan, in Fled Brickland, anyway. Yes, which is what we found so interesting so about his portrayal there. sympathetic towards him. Yeah, there. yeah. Um, you know, but, but oddly enough, both um, Gilgamesh and Cahullan have partly other world ancestry. Yes. Whereas Maldon is a human hero. He's fully human, yeah. And... Yeah. I find that interesting. That's quite unusual when you mm. think about it. A fully human hero who isn't even claiming sort of other world ancestry or connections. Or even other world fosterage, which is one of the other roots. Yeah, that's, yeah. there's no connection. Mm. Is this a wonder why he can't actually stay with the other world woman? Mm. Whether mm. there is no link. There's just, yeah, there's just no way for him to actually be part of that world. Oshin has links. Of course, yes. Through yeah. his mother. Yes. But Maldon doesn't have those links. No. I, I just find that odd. Mm. Um, it's it's quite sad in a way. He's lost the alternate path of happiness with the other old woman. Mm. He ends up without his foster mother, presumably, mm. without his natural, alienating his natural mother, mm. and without a wife. Yeah, yeah. And this is all a consequence of trying to escape his story, the natural balance of his life. Yeah, well, trying to escape his court. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, it is interesting that it is so entirely human. He can't escape the fact that he is a mortal human being. Uh, even though he started off with this very promising hero birth, um, it ultimately comes to nothing. All he ends up as is someone with a story. Yeah, but what a story. Exactly. It's I think this gives him immortality. Yes, of course, but of a human kind. Human, yeah. And now the second way of interpreting this story, I think it's particularly interesting. Mm. And this is in terms of literary criticism. Yes. Now, I think, yeah, well, I know that the ideas came from, from a lecture that you came across or you went to. Yes. Um, it's really started off by a paper that I heard in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies last September 2013. There was a conference on genre in medieval Celtic literature. And uh, this got me really excited because, mm. of course, it meant people applying the literary theory that I learned studying English mm -hmm. oh, to ancient literature. And this is something I think hasn't been done enough. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Because applying, uh, applying, I'd say, modern criticism mm. to early literature, I yeah. think is very important. Now, the, the paper from which this particular idea comes was given by Elizabeth C. Buchelt. Uh, I apologise if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Um, but the title was uh, Reading Readers 
reading. The Imrava as exemplars for productive monastic reading practices. Uh, I think it's slightly um, <laughs> cumbersome title, but never mind. <laughs> well, that tends to be the way when you're writing a paper. Um, so essentially what she was talking about was looking at particularly the Imrav Mueldun um, as a model within a monastic context, mm -hmm. um, a way of teaching the monastic students how to understand a literary text and how to get meaning from things that they were reading. Now that's an intriguing idea mm. that this comparatively secular adventure story mm. could have been used even maybe developed mm. as a monastic teaching tool. So how does this work in practice? Well um, to put it in a bit of historical context if you like, um, we've said many times before yeah. that the, the early Christian monks in Ireland they were very much the educated men and they were mostly men. Oh, Both, reading was central to it, them wasn't it? It was absolutely crucial yeah. to their intellectual development and to their education. Now when we're talking about reading here we're talking about if you like the visually interpreting marks on a page but also they would have been read to uh, often over meal times um, and not just as an entertainment, they were expected to be listening and learning from it and thinking about it as they were doing so. And it didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily restricted to what we would think of as religious texts. There were sex, secular mm -hmm. texts involved in this as yeah. well. A, a wide variety of, of, of texts, so I understand. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the more the merrier. And um, because it was all under the idea that all reading is an intellectual exercise, you know, that it's food for your mind as at the same time as you're taking it food for your body. But they may have been influenced, of course, by sort of classical uh, ways of working, mm. and particularly the ancient Greeks. Yes. Now, I mean, they held dinner parties, which included structured discussion mm. and conversation. That was a symposia. Yes. And poor Greek young men, oh, woe betide them if they mm. couldn't, um, if they couldn't exceed expectations mm. in conversations as well as at the games. Yes. They were expected to be able to perform magnificently mm. in argument, discussion, and conversation as exactly. well as all the sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was quite something. I mean, the symposia, mm. we still use the word today. Yes, we do. Um, and what's lovely is that the root meaning of symposium is drinking buddies. You know, <laughs> yeah. basically people who drink together and therefore are talking together and discussing but and you developing were, ideas. You, uh, you were expected to yeah. be able to talk quite deep in detail and mm. deeply about exactly. uh, very complex subjects. Yeah, and yeah. even at Roman banquets, mm. you know, you had a different topic of discussion at every course mm -hmm. of a proper banquet. Oh, yes. I'm not talking about drunken orgies. No, either, no, no. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, the a real formal banquet very yeah. important. You know? Yes. So it's not a new idea in no, that sense. But no. no TV dinners. No, this wasn't just, uh, no, it wasn't just passing the time or just, you know, brain candy or whatever, you know. It's a really good idea, isn't it? Oh, it's it? fantastic. Would I... you think we should bring that back in? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So, okay, in what ways do you think Maldon can be interpreted as a teaching tool? Well, um, in Buchholz's paper, um, she was talking about how the structure of the voyage with its islands could be used as a model for uh, memory. If you just think of the sort of Sherlock Holmes with his mind palace or all the different rooms. Exactly. Some of those and a lot of 
sort of modern tips on how to improve your memory talk about having this house with different rooms and you put things yeah. in there to remember them and structure them. I mean, a mnemonic systems are, are not new. No. I used to use a very complicated one when I was doing A-levels, which mm. involved lots of squiggles, <laughs> which I could legitimately take these strips of squiggles into the paper. Oh, yeah. Into the, I'm not cheating. <laughs> yeah. But it meant by reading this list of squiggles, mm. I had the whole page of my history or, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, it works if your mind works that way. Exactly, yeah. But I mean, really ancient systems like oh, the Hebrew Kabbalah, mm -hmm. which people think of as a great magical system, mm. but it's actually a wonderful uh, coat hanger system for the process of thinking exactly. or, or the process of creation, yes. which is the creation of, of, of thought to action. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's really effective. Yeah. But what about Ockham, for instance? Yeah, well, as we uh, said when we did our special on when is a tree not a tree, um, looking at the Oum or Ogham, uh, you can pronounce it either way, just like with the Ogham, which is this kind of conceptual coat hanger, as you say, mm. um, it is also a bit more than just a mnemonic system. It's not just like your Richard of York gave battle in vain. Mm. It is also telling you how to access and structure those memories, how to sort of imprint them in your own mind and how to relate the ideas one mm. to another. Yeah, the Kabbalistic system Mem the Kabbalistic, um, shall we say, lightning flash creation mm. works in exactly the same exactly, way. Exactly, yeah. It is more than just a mnemonic system of where yes. you left things. Yeah, yeah. It's how to organise where you left things. Exactly, exactly. How to get back to them and how to and relate how, them to each yes, other. Yes, and how to then find new connections between them. Yes, yeah. And that's where the creativity comes in, yes, of course. Yes, yes. It's but the it's, new connections. It's organising like a mm. room where you can um, you can make new paths or yeah. you can follow recognised paths. Mm -hmm. uh, but you usually know how to get to where you were planning to get to yes yeah if you've learnt the system yeah but yes i think you're right this mm. is this is working exactly the same way mm -hmm. so you're saying they're all mechanisms for teaching people how to think i think at root yes i think that is what it's about and it's what we might now term a cognitive toolkit yeah and it it's i know from teaching uh, small children mm. that um or even adults, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come to think of it. But teaching through using absurd or bizarre examples mm. yeah, as, 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 as metaphors. It's almost a reductio ad absurdum. You know, you explore an idea to its utter limit, which is ridiculous. And then create an image which mm. you're never going to forget. Yeah. Yeah. And I find with, with very young children, mm -hmm. it's it, it's something that they respond to very well. If yeah. you create an absurd example, mm -hmm. they will remember that whether you're teaching them grammar or math mm -hmm. concepts. Mm -hmm. um, and they learn how to use it much more, you know, use it themselves. Yeah. They absorb yeah. it and uh, make, it, make it part of themselves mm. much more quickly than if you give them loads of exercises. Yes, exactly. I think it works in exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah. So Maldon is a cognitive toolkit. Oh, yeah. I like that. Absolutely. Well, I think that even more than that, that the the story of Muel'dun can be a tool used for teaching reading skills. Now, I don't mean the kind of the visual interpretation not of teaching them to read. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. of li basic literacy like that, but how to actually engage with and understand a text, how to interpret it. Yeah. And remember that this text, it could be written down, but it can also be a spoken or a heard text. Yeah, now in a, an oral society, mm. as uh, when we talked about the early Irish, mm -hmm. where the oral is so important, mm. this is something people aren't used to this day, yeah, yeah. these days. It's something I've spent most of my life pushing for, yeah. <laughs> the importance of the oral strands of the curriculum. Exactly. Or just how much we underestimate mm. that skill set and exactly. don't teach that skill set. Yes, yes. Which 
is learning from the spoken text. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it it is. I think we've lost a lot by not mm. being able to do that. But it is a different skill set. It is a different skill set, as you know, both you and I know. I mean, I'm very dependent on audiobooks because I can't read print anymore, and my mind just works that way. Exactly, yeah. But it's it. While it is definitely reading, and it is definitely you know as so much. Engaging with the text. As yeah, it we're talking about page. an audible book, let's exactly, say, or yeah. an audible textbook, or an yeah. audible novel, or yeah. whatever, or poetry, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm just making that clear. That yes, that's what we're yeah, talking yeah. About. Um, but that while it is still an act of reading, it's a it takes a different set of skills and a different way of interacting with what you could call the same text. But it's so rewarding mm. because once you get used to it, mm. in fact, you can remember and organise in your head while mm. you're listening in mm. exactly the same way mm -hmm. that you would when you're reading. Yeah, yeah. And you you can keep notes or not keep notes exactly the same as if you yeah. were reading. Yeah. Um, I find it easier to mentally find where I am in a book I've listened to. Yes, yeah, yeah. Than in a written book. Exactly. I don't have to keep turning pages. Yeah, yeah. And another <laughs> thing that you can do, which I've wanted to do all my life, mm. I can ride a motorbike and read a book <laughs> At the same time, yeah. Or I can strim the garden, yeah, yeah. And I got into such trouble when I was a child by mm. dropping books in the washing up bowl <laughs> yeah, yeah. or bumping into lampposts. I did try to read a book on a bicycle mm. once, but mm. I bumped into a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now, as I, I, I can read a book wherever I am. Yes. Yeah. And it's a huge joy. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know. So, oh, sorry, we're sounding sounding. Well, again, this is one of the reasons why we chose to do a podcast is because we know that um, listening to information gives you a whole new access into it, a whole new way to and experience it. And it's much it. easier for us to oh, organise yeah. it. Yeah, big time. Um, and I've been listening to radio plays mm. uh, since I was three, yeah. and it's still my favourite medium. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, undervalued. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Undervalued. <laughs> it's a big thing for us, that yeah, is. The yeah. importance of listening to books. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, we'll give up on the digression, go back to what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah right, let's go back to Wildoon and literary <laughs> theory, shall we? In uh, Buchel's paper, she was looking at the islands that Muildoon encounters as kind of standing for the instability of language and of meaning. You know, the, the getting meaning from a text is not necessarily straightforward. Um, now, one thing that I think is really interesting in looking at Muildoon this way is that where in other systems you might have your memory palace or your house, some kind of architectural model where everything is quite set, it is, of course, natural that in Ireland we would translate that into landscape. I mean, just look at Dinhenicus. Mm -hmm. Dinhenicus is all about the landscape as a text that can be read and interacted with. Oh, absolutely. Think back to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Dinhenicus and Dreamtime. Yes. Yeah, we're linking it with the Australian Aboriginal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, but what I kind of like about that is that it's not as sort of rigid as an architectural model of thinking. You can go and visit the islands in any order that you like. It also means the islands, it's more like a sort of intertextuality, so that texts are not just sort of <laughs> whole and entire unto themselves, that they have a relationship to each other that's quite fluid. Mm -hmm. um, and although you could visit the islands in any order you like, you know, some of them will be an easier journey than others. Yes. You know, you might have to go on quite a long roundabout route. Very modern mind mapping. It is, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think it's a great reflection for a way of thinking and a mm -hmm. way of understanding, you know. So it's one of the things I really like about this as a model for engaging with texts well, and with language. selling me the idea. <laughs> Well, look, why don't we look at some of the examples of specific islands yeah. as metaphor for reading techniques and maybe demonstrate what you're yes, talking about. Yes, exactly. I mean, okay, let's take 
a few I know that um, the paper talked about. Exactly. And, and then we go on to some that it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's start with the giant ants. Yes. Well, in a very kind of straightforward sense, I suppose, it can stand for losing a bit of perspective, you know, that if you're not paying attention you're to the text, <laughs> yeah, it can just swallow you whole and you can never get out of it. And I think a few people might have had that experience trying to read Joyce's Ulysses for a start, you know, that it just turns into giant ants. <laughs> oh, just your average maths book. <laughs> well, that too, yes. <laughs> no, I'm better than I used to be. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's try the happy beast. Well, with the happy beast, uh, this is the one with the, the hound's feet, but looks a bit like a horse. Who still wants to eat everything. Exactly, but what's quite nice is that there's a big difference between how it first appears and what it really wants. That at first it's like, oh, look, happy beast, happy to see us. But Wildoon says, aha, it's happy because it wants to eat us. So there's a difference there between, if you like, the, the face value of, of the text and the subtext. Oh, that's right. Watch out for the subtext. Exactly. Read between the lines. Yeah, you that's know. a good message. We know. Don't yeah. take everything at face value. Exactly, yeah, because it, it'll sometimes turn out to want to eat you. Now, let's try for a really tough one. Mm. Let's go for the revolving piece. Yes. <laughs> Make sense of that if you can. Well, I think actually that, that this particular theory it makes some of the best sense of the revolving beast because it's one of those, again, more modern literary ideas that text and meaning is, is always shifting. It's mm, always no, in, in play. And anytime you think you've got it pinned down, then it spins around on you and turns into something completely you mean, like, different. Trying to read Suzuki. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like any of those kind of Zen type uh, texts, you know, that you kind of go, "Oh, I think I've got it." Several hours. Oh then, no, I haven't got it. No, 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 sorry, didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, so it's that kind of thing where something is just kind of spinning around in ways that mm. you can't even really properly visualize. Um, although there is that little reminder of the stone in the hole to say, come on, there is still some meaning here. You just have to work a little and bit harder And you're going to carry it. some away with you. Exactly, yeah. You know, yeah. They, they can't get rid of that one mm. stone, can they? No, no, no. Otherwise, their entire sort yeah. of theoretical framework, their boat will sink if they take out that little bit of what appears to be nonsense. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I think that's actually, it's one of the clearest ideas I've ever had of and the revolving beast. Wonderful justification for Lewis Carroll. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. <laughs> okay, I made it note, though. Maybe I'm just wondering, it might also be a warning to storytellers mm. not to um, not to just try and be too clever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of had this image of, you know, someone trying to tell a story and be, being too fast and jumping from one thing to another. Actually, it might be because of the play that I'm working on that I can tend to do that. <laughs> and so it's kind of a warning to say, look, you're going to lose your audience if you go yeah. round and round or if you go too fast or, you know. Or just try and be too clever. Exactly. Yeah. That can just lose yeah, your audience. Exactly. I can think of one or two films mm. that, that are just too clever yeah. and you go, that's absolutely brilliant, but no one's going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Um, okay, another of our favourites. Mm. What about the cat? Well, this again is kind of text and subtext, but it's more kind of the foster brother who reaches for the shiny thing. You know, if you try to Ooh, shiny take things. the shiny, obvious meaning, then there's a risk that you will never get to understand yeah. the text at all. You know, after all, the foster brother disintegrates, you know, because he's just reached for the first thing that catches his eye and then the entire meaning is completely lost to him. Yeah. You know, so it's this kind of warning. To warning say, to read, not to read the tabloids. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, not to take the simplistic and obvious 
But <laughs> interestingly enough, if it's meaning don't be too literal, mm. that's exactly the mistake that Maldon is making a lot of the time. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we said that what mm. set him off on his journey was this quest for literal truth, you know, for the obvious meaning, if you like. Yeah, and I have to say here that mm. I know when you first presented this paper to me, mm. I was slightly concerned, I had a caveat, that mm. um, although I find the approach incredibly attractive, mm. I was thought there might be a danger of overthinking, trying to make some of these bizarre islands fit the theory. Yeah, yeah. And that that's, you know, I mean, like, oh, I, I know we've talked about it before. Mm. I know you and I seriously delight the I dislike the idea of these of Imrama being described as um, a book of the dead. Yeah, yeah, it has been done. Yes, there's absolutely no evidence for that. No, I don't think there is, and I don't think there's evidence for any belief of a kind of a, an after death journey that the soul has to take uh, yeah. that that is quite so structured in within the Irish. Uh, and I mean, I know we've said that the, the uh, Ikora is a metaphorical dark journey of the soul. Yes. But not an after-death route map to the other world. There was no need no. for any such thing. No, exactly. But also that the Ikora, you know, we've said it's the most constructed, the most literary of them. And I don't think that Dun fits that pattern quite so well. Mm. But I think that there is quite a good case to be made for this... Um, cognitive toolkit for understanding mm. uh, texts and for thinking clearly, if you As like. I said, I'm very attracted mm. to the idea. And the more you talk about it, the mm. more I feel that uh, <coughs> I can see the point. Yes. But yeah. I had to put in that slight caveat. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like we said, it's a mistake that Maeldun made. Mm. This is not the only way of reading the text. Mm. It's just one among many. No, I'm getting convinced. Do you mm. think there are any indications that this approach could apply to any of the other Imrama we've looked at? Well, I think that if you take the approach, particularly to Snagus and Macriagla and to the Ikura, what you get there are, if you like, self-explaining islands. You know, that they yeah, meet, yeah, I see what you mean. They meet things that are strange or that seem to need interpretation, but there's always someone there to explain it to them, you know, and tell them, oh, this is what's going a on. Courage, yeah. Or a monkess exactly. or a talking bird or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, there's always someone there to explain for them. So I think that's a little bit like reading a text which has glosses or notes in the margin, you know, which, okay. of course, we know that the Irish monks were, were very fond of. What I quite like about Mueldun, in contrast, is that it leaves more up to the reader. It leaves more up to Mueldun and his people to figure yeah, out, yeah. and to us to try and interpret as readers of the text as well. So that gives it much more scope, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know when I listen to the paper, I know mm -hmm. it's difficult to hear, but I know when I listen to um, book Bookelt or Buschelt, Mm. was unable to, seemed to be unable to offer any way of including the Isle of Women into this interpretation yeah. of the story. Now, I know you asked her about that. I did, yeah. And I think since then you've answered your own question. Yeah, I mean, it was just a question of that she hadn't kind of applied the oh, theory yeah, herself, no, yeah. you know, um, so she hadn't yet done the work. Um, but yeah, since then, I think I've managed to apply this theoretical framework to the whole sequence of the encounters with women that Mueldun goes through. Um, and by using the kind of the theoretical concept where there's a division between self and other, mm. and given that this is a text about men, written probably by men, probably for men, then women stand for the other. Yeah, now we've talked about encountering the other, mm. uh, encountering women as the other yeah. before. Yeah. And you're quite right. I mean, after all, these are all men yeah. and most of the monks. Exactly, exactly. So um, using this as a model for reading and uh, uh, encountering texts, um, that 
one reading then is a mode of encountering the other you know mm-hmm. even if if you don't have something strange and different in your own locality you can encounter it through a text through a story and of course text is just a fancy word for story well, well let's looking look at the in order mm. the, 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 the islands where they encounter women yeah i suppose the first one is the one that we refer to as the cream cheese maiden. yes yes um now in this it there it starts off with this classical structure of you know father Division mother sister brother or were. king queen prince and princess where the islands divided into sections exactly yeah so you've got this kind of traditional structure uh, or if you like a traditional family structure and the maiden comes out from that she comes out from a structure gets a certain amount of individual features and she just presents the crew with this nourishment and possibly sexual favors as well so it's this kind of one way street whereby the other comes out and you know provides gives, them with gives nourishment new. or or pleasure mm. you know to the readers to Wilden and his crew. Right now, the next time we encounter a woman, as mm. it were, is the bridge of what we call the bridge of glass woman. Yes, that's that wonderful island where you have this wonderful bridge of glass, and mm. she goes and collects this um, uh, milk. Yes, from underneath the bottom of the rainbow. Yeah, and there's this sort of flirty interchange between, yeah. or you know, yeah, you, between Wildoon and, and, and the woman. And yeah, the woman. yeah, and now uh, this is, I would see this as the opening up of negotiation. That there's a possibility that the self and other could maybe meet, could maybe actually exchange ideas, have an encounter. Um, but I wondered then, if that's the case, whether the woman as the otherness disappeared because she didn't want to be subsumed into Mweldon's kind of self-context. You know, she, she didn't want to just get absorbed into Mweldon's self She's still other, even though there there was some exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, a a conversation, literally opened up. And then, of course, we've got the sort of full blown encounter. Mm. This is the one, of course, the island of the women, with, yes. where she is a queen and mm. a judge. Yes, and in this, what we have is this other, which is fully contextualized. She has all of her daughters around her. She has a whole island that is hers a whole land that is defined by her she has her own role she has her own job to fulfill mm-hmm. so she's very much distinct um and in fact then what we find is that when wildoon and his crew as the selfness you know mm-hmm. the meanness uh, or the reader along with his whole social context that after spending some time in this other world and it is another world and they start to get uncomfortable they don't like that everything they're doing is defined by otherness Mm -hmm. you know that they don't they no longer have the control the say over how their world is shaped and so that's why they want to withdraw from that and withdraw from this complete otherness. To be a bit old-fashioned, it sounds very Jungian to me. Oh, it is terribly Jungian, <laughs> exactly. Well, again, this is you, you get the sort of self-other dichotomy within Lacanian uh, psychoanalysis yes, as well. Yes, you do. Yeah. I mean, it is just, it just really just oh, it is. sounded familiar as exactly. you were talking about yeah, it. Yeah. But it can also be divided to it. You're saying it can also be uh, applied to encountering a text. Exactly. That same yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. That at, at this point, if you like, Mildun 
as the reader is starting to lose himself within the world of the text. You know, that he's losing his identity and his idea of where he fits in society. So he needs to step out and get a, a more objective view again. Well, that's certainly what he is drawn to do yeah, by yeah. his crew, by his, his sort of society, his context. And that might explain something about why there is this mutilation and yeah. leaving. Yeah, why that has to happen in order to then sort of disentangle the sense of self from the sense of other that comes from the text. There is this mutilation. Part of the self has to be cut off in order mm -hmm. to withdraw from that entanglement. And I think that that makes it very interesting that it's a hand, which is the way you do things. It's your agency yeah, that has yeah. to be somewhat sacrificed if you want to then uh, sort of repossess yourself in complete separation from otherness, if you ever then want to totally distance yourself from the other, you also lose a bit of yourself. And turning in terms of reading and mm. interpreting a text, mm. to step back to gain an objective viewpoint mm. can mean letting go of things that you have really been moved by or really feel strongly. Yes. Sometimes you have to let go of a pet theory. Exactly. In order to step back and check whether yeah. you're being being objective. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And whether in fact you're you've got the evidence that you think you've got. Yes, exactly. So I can I can take yeah. your point there. Mm, mm. In fact I, I don't know, it's an excellent interpretation. I think the sequence makes huge sense. Mm, mm. I'm impressed. That's all right. However, I just need to point out that, mm. as I said, it's very Jungian. Mm. Um, and, you know, that was just one interpretation. Mm. But it could have been equally, we could have taken the same argument mm. and applied it to the, what we, this section we called Life of Pi, mm. the, the, shall we say, the psychological journey of the protagonist. Yeah. Well, I frankly think that proves my point. <laughs> Because, yeah. again, as we said, Muldoon has to learn that there are different ways to tell the story. And because there are different, completely consistent ways of reading this text, I think that's what makes it a good text. You know, that you can either look at it as this kind of intellectual exercise of exploring how we read and how we interact with texts, but it's equally as much a story about the personal development of a protagonist. So to listen to what you're saying mm. is that it wasn't uh, written for the person purpose. No, no, I don't think that it was written. I don't, because no. it's too much a storyteller story. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I think that it could well have been developed for this purpose, uh, developed in order to show Adapted. all these different readings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the number of times in various story workshops mm. or even folklore workshops years ago, particularly, I used Douglas Adams' oh, yes. uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah, yeah, yeah. as an exemplar, a way of giving wonderful examples of, of sort of metaphorical examples mm. of things you encountered in everyday life. Yeah, yeah. And Douglas Adams is dead easy to oh, do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even the idea of uh, how do you learn to fly, where you throw yourself at the ground and miss. Yes, yeah. And showing exactly how. How you do that in story exactly how it yeah. happens yeah 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 uh yeah and i mean we've been guilty of using exactly the same thing here oh all using the time. text yeah to, uh, I, I don't know teach or yeah or explore, explore ideas yeah, yeah 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 and, and possibilities yeah yeah so we do it yeah <laughs> well I, I i think that speculative fiction of the douglas adams variety is particularly good at this because it's a real meeting point for philosophy and literature. It's good storytelling too. It's good storytelling as well. And I think that Muldoon, if you like, you Is could categorise it as yeah. speculative fiction. Why not? Just because it was written a long time of ago. Of course it's speculative fiction. Yeah. It's, um, it's science fiction. Yeah. It's going into the unknown. Exactly. And, um, a five-year mission to explore, explore strange, strange new worlds. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I think that yeah. 
You've just proven everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we've right. just decided that Muldoon is an early Irish Star Trek. Totally. <laughs> yes. Original <laughs> generation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, or is it next generation? Pro-generation, pro I don't know. Progenitor generation, I don't <laughs> I know. the clue. <laughs> now, we talked a lot about Muldoon being a, a transitional text. Yes, and um, I think that where this kind of comes in terms of transition is that point where there's a real turning away from this native or indigenous other world conception, as we found with, you know, the island with the fiery rampart, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, it, they've turned away from the indigenous other world, but they haven't yet incorporated that very Kayla Day Christian heaven and hell that we meet in the Ikura. They haven't mm -hmm. got there yet. So it's in between those worldviews, if you like. That's, yeah. it's that or kind it's of alternate to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I know Muldoon is earlier, but mm. they seem to run concurrently in many ways. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they refer to each other, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can see that Muldoon is, has a Christian... It's just that that's what people are used to. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's set in a Christian world. Yeah. But... Um, the pre-Christian motives sort of started to become entertaining fairytale elements. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, no Kayla Day. No, no, it doesn't have that, that yeah. sort of piety that we find in some of the other texts. Okay, so I suppose the, the other theme that we just ought to revisit yeah. very briefly is the theme of landlessness and homelessness. Yeah, and this is very much uh, what I think I mentioned before in the Ikura about the gelt in the wilderness, you know, the, the non-person who goes out into the, the no fool. man's land. Yeah, the, in the Ikura, yeah, in the Ikura we had the fool who tried to join the voyage and he didn't last very long. I think that maybe there wasn't space for him in that story, but here that's Mueldun's role really is to be this fool and wander around. The holy fool. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that sort of blessed madman mm -hmm. wandering around in the ocean um, without any kind of legal ties to a particular piece of land or a particular family structure. Yeah, well, he sort of made himself clownless. Yeah, which is very similar to the results of being set adrift, you know, like the men of Ross were. I suppose, yeah, in the end, all one could say is this undirected sea voyage mm. is a very powerful metaphor, isn't it? Is, it is, yeah. For a lot of different things. Exactly, it has so much to so be... So much applicability. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, since we've sort of finished the four official yeah, we perhaps ought to just reprise them as a set, just, yeah. just give know, an overview, compare and contrast. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and as I say, just I just thought while we were talking about it, uh, because it's quite difficult to compare them. Mm. All, is older carefully put together <laughs> a table of all the islands? Yes. Yeah. It's been sort of guiding us as we go, mm, mm. but I've sort of created a PDF version. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that'll be available to download. Well, just, yeah. It's it's just a sort of a notation to remind you of uh, you know the different experiences and try and maybe just see how they connect up over the different stories. Yeah, it's quite interesting mm. when you look at them on a, on a table. Yeah. But it's, it's not it's not any detail. No, any detail. no, it's just a, 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 it's a mnemonic aid. Yes. <laughs> anyway, go, no, no, yes. the first one obviously is Bran. Yes. And I suppose that's an adventure into the native poetic other world mm. with the island of women as its destination. Yeah. And they get to stay there. Exactly, exactly. And um, this is also very much part of this traditional poetic form of storytelling where the poetry is at the core and the prose seems to have been built up around yeah. it you know and feels very old it does yeah and yet what's really interesting mm. is this um is Mananan in this yeah and here he is sort of retrofitted in as a sort of creator god yeah yeah which is just shocking yeah 
fascinating mm. and obviously shows the influence of a Christian into a non-Christian story. Exactly, yeah. Whereas you usually expect it to go the other way. Yeah, so, I, th yeah. I thought that was quite a surprise Absolutely. when we looked at that, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? And then we have the Imrov of Snegus and Macriagla. Now that is sort of, I, as I was trying to write the story from that, it was yeah. quite a practical commentary on how to survive extreme monasticism. Yes. <laughs> And what's more, the monks would seem hungry all yeah, the time, which yeah. is probably quite realistic. Yeah, but again, it's it's all about that sort of uh, providing of food from heaven. It also shows us this kind of transition from the very familiar native otherworld or pre-non-Christian otherworld we found in Bran into a more kind of in Christian-informed otherworld. Um, and it also has this theme of the setting adrift punishment, although what's quite nice in Snegus and Magriegla is that the so-called criminals are done a huge favour by being set adrift. They find themselves a new homeland. It's yeah. great. You know, they and say thank you for doing this to us. where their resurrection will be. Exactly. You know, in yeah. other words, it's their real homeland. Yeah, they found the right they found place. They the real place. Yeah. They're not being dispossessed. And mm. I think it's fairly typical of... Um, Oh, column kill style Christianity. Yeah, yeah, which is all about kind of very practical miracles and, you know, ordinary. It Good, solid, very... robust stuff. Yeah, yeah. And interesting enough, after all, it's about a group of people who are set adrift in punishment and sent away and they find a homeland of their own. Yes. Doesn't this describe column kill? Exactly. It's just what happened to him. He goes and then becomes the most famous, you know, saint based in Iona after being kicked out of He's this country. He's sent off to an island yeah, where yeah. he becomes the most uh, famous and he has, yeah. he's given a home from home. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, no, it is the story of Colm Killam anyway. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it reflects that. Then, of course, we have our Ikora, the dark journey of the soul. Oh, yes. Par excellence. Yeah, that sort of descent and, and then redemption. Um, in that, the native other world seems almost completely gone. What we really have are these visions of this very Kayla Day informed hell. You it's know. horrible. It's, it, and it's very noticeably different from the yeah. others, you know. And it... it does seem a sort of, um, oh, I don't know, a literary, literary Kayla Day version of Maldoran. Yeah, it, it feels as though it has been completely reconstructed and very consciously constructed for a particular purpose. And that's why we were describing it as a literary style. It had that kind of, you could feel the authorial shaping going on. Whereas with Maldoran, we feel it feels more kind of organic storytelling. Well, I mean, is there anything to say about Maldon that we haven't already said? I mean, I might comment that it's surprising. It has monsters. Yes, yeah. M many more monsters than the others, rather than, you know, visions of sinners being punished in hell. These yeah. are just weird. There's just weird and stuff. And it's quite secular compared mm. to... Uh, Snegus and Ikara. Absolutely, yeah. I think possibly the most interesting thing is the separation from the other world. Now, you mm. only go to the other world when you die. Yeah. You work, you die, you go to heaven if, if you're, you're lucky. lucky. Yeah, yeah. And that's very much the modern world. It is modern very, Christian yeah. Um, and maybe that's part of why we were identifying Maldon as such a, a human character mm. that, you know, it's very much how we are now without that well, sense of personal what, connection. what life's about. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you work, you die, yeah. and then you go to heaven. And then you get your reward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now the other worlds become much more alien and dangerous, of course. Yeah, it is much more like a, a, a totally unknown landscape, whereas before you might know what to expect. Now you have all this monstrous out-of-scale stuff. Yeah, it's the out-of-scale stuff. Yeah. The terrifying out-of-scale. It's mm. the fact that it's out-of-scale seems to bother them more than Absolutely. anything else. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there was one other thing. I think, although 
um, they look at the fiery ramparts and mm. they look in, but it's only with curiosity. It yeah. would be delightful, but it doesn't matter. They've got other things to exactly, do. Exactly, yeah. It lacks the nostalgia that we find in the Fenian stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness me, the uh, Agalaf. Yeah. You know, the, the, all those, when he's talking to, Oshin is talking to Patrick, yeah. and he finally gets back from Scape's Neve. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not talking about story. <laughs> um, but, I mean, she takes him out of something really good, and mm. he's quite happy and... Brooks is like, basically. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> we'll get to that. Mm, we will. It's when he's talking to Patrick and the mm. nostalgia. Mm. And I remember at one point, there's a lot of things, but one of the things he says is uh, he's just described the, 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 the Isle of Women mm, and the, other world. Old, yeah, know, the yeah. whole thing. And he says, Oh, well, he says, if your God can offer anything half as good as that, then I'll join up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's always, well, it's what can you do you know, after that? Yeah, you're, you're never going to come up with a, yeah. a deal as good as that one, as that one that we are losing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, in fact, the, the Oglif, Shaloric, is mm. absolutely full of that sort of nostalgia. It is, it is. Well, it's all about the transition from one to the other again. It's the sadness know. in that, mm, though. Mm. The sense of loss. That there, yeah, there's but a sense you... all the way through that this is actively disappearing before their eyes. And how... You know how how much loss there is mm. in this, and how nostalgic they are yeah. for the good old days. Exactly. Whereas the oh, you get a hint of it when Maldoran leaves the Isle of Women. Yeah. But it's not much. No, no. It's it's he's got something else to go on to. Mm. He's still got something mm. left to do. And I suppose the last thing I would say is um, is I just love the oral storytelling style. The dialogue is quite it's, fantastic, and it's so clear throughout this. You yeah. know, I think it, it's often been said in the past. You know that you can't really distinguish something that has been, you know, authorially composed, if you like, and something that is a, an oral tale that has kept going. But I think that we've successfully pointed out, just as we did with Nira and with Tygo Kane, mm. you know, in comparing them. And seeing the difference between, you know, a literary composition on the same motifs. You need to read it aloud. Exactly. You need to speak it. You can mm. feel that. Yeah. I mean, okay, it's clear that it's an early, we know it's the earliest version mm. of the, or it's supposed to be the earliest It's version. one of the earlier yeah. texts, yeah, linguistically but speaking. But nevertheless, you mm. can see how it's constantly been told. Exactly. And changed as it goes. And updated so, Yeah, updated context. and yeah. gradually taken on more Christian story furniture yeah. as it goes. Yes, yeah, exactly. But you know, there's still... oral. Yeah, exactly. That's and how an oral story works yeah. and grows yeah yeah and Maldoon to me shows every sign yeah of that oral development yeah yeah absolutely yeah no I really like mm. it so if we have a conclusion can yes. we find a conclusion <laughs> <laughs> I suppose if I was going to try and sort of hold it all together I'd mm. say that well all four in Rama are journeys into the unknown but yeah. each has sort of different reasons mm. and different unknowns exactly yeah the unknown they For go all into all their similarities so they are different they are each very different and you know we have sort of pointed out each one in turn has a transitional sense to it uh, but that the form or the genre as a whole also feels transitional and that's why it's interesting that you have this overall label of Imrov and yet each one has such a distinct mm. character you know and yeah. that makes it interesting as a group as a genre yeah but when is an Imrov not an yeah. Imrov <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to leave that for next time yeah yeah we're going to look at some stories that could have been classed as part of this set that could have been called an Imrov but aren't and why most importantly <laughs> oh, right. see you next time see you next time thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagas Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit 
www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.